Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 58 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Eric Davis. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Um, it looks like everybody else is busy. So it's just going to be us this week. So how's it going, Eric? Um, I'm not that busy. I had a busy week last week and basically actually took yesterday off. So I'm just starting to kind of get back into things again. So I actually have a bunch of time. Yeah, I just picked up another contract. So uh, things are starting to ramp up for me again. And then I'm trying to get all this stuff together for a few other things I've got going on. But uh, yeah, <laughs> there's always something to do. Yeah, the hamster wheel never stops spinning. Yeah, I'm seriously thinking about going and taking a nap after this instead of working, though. So this week, we're going to be talking about how to convince clients of the value of tests and refactoring and things like that. I guess we should uh, talk about the premise really quickly of, is there value in tests and refactoring and stuff? Yeah, I don't know. I don't agree with a lot of the kind of popular opinion about basically how you have to test everything and all that stuff. I'm very... I, I, pragmatic's a good way of phrasing it, but I'm, I'm not sure. But I think there's value there, but I don't think there's as much value as a lot of people place in it. And especially if you consider it from the client's perspective, there might not be as much value in testing, refactoring, all that stuff as developers put into it. Okay. What value do you see in tests? So for a client, I mean... The value they're going to get out of tests is going to be regression type tests. Like, you know, this bug occurred, it was fixed, there's a test to prove it's never going to come back. There's also value in kind of like end-to-end tests. Um, some people call that acceptance test or integration test where it's, you know, the system works from point A to point C going through point B. And that's, that's where, you know, the clients are usually or hopefully really involved with like writing the test, how it's going to flow, all that stuff. In those cases, I think there's a lot of value for the client. Depending on the client and the type of software you're building, they might not want to put a lot of time into it. Um, I know I've had a couple of clients where they were too busy to actually write the acceptance test. And so I would write them based on what the client would tell me. And then as we iterate on it, like the workflow, we would we would tweak our understanding of the system and I would take that understanding and, and write the test for them. On the other hand, unit tests, I think for a client, there's very little value for them directly in unit tests. I think almost all of the value in unit tests are for the developer. And that's for, you know, thinking through the design and coming up with a good design. I'm not saying unit tests are worthless because they're actually really great for starting with a simple design, iterating on it and getting to a working result, which that has value. I just think the actual unit tests themselves as a deliverable are almost worthless. That's really interesting. So I'm going to take kind of an, a different approach. Um, most of the tests that I write are unit tests. Um, I sometimes write uh, the acceptance tests, but it, I mean, it really has to be something that's kind of complicated from top to bottom. Um, I don't test everything front to back. I'm In the sense that I don't write unit tests, for example, in a Ruby on Rails app, I typically don't write unit tests for my controllers or my views. Um, I just don't see the value there. For the most part, the view is just a matter of is it showing the correct data in the right place, and you can get that out of a unit test by unit testing the the method that's going to give it the data. The you know the controllers, I try to keep that as simple as possible so that it really is just a matter of you know does it get the right values, and if if you're doing that, then again you can cover that by unit tests. 
um, in, in, on your models. Um, I like to do the unit tests, and the reason is is because as I move forward, then um, I, I can validate all of the business logic, which is typically the more complicated part, and I feel like that's really where the value is. And then as I'm working through things later on, um, if I either come into conflict with something, so I'm, I'm, you know, adding another feature and I can't finish that feature without breaking an existing spec or test, then I can take that back to the client and say, hey, look, um, you know, we, we specified that this would work this way, but I can't do this and this other thing and make them work the same way, you know, and I can give them some options. The other thing is, is sometimes I'm touching stuff and I don't realize that I'm breaking stuff, and so the unit tests come in handy there as well. And so it's really just a maintenance thing for that, uh, as far as uh, you know, maintaining the working system. And and I guess that is kind of a regression suite, but it it's not an acceptance, a set of acceptance tests that tell you that it works front to back. Well, the, I would actually consider the way you're talking about unit tests. I mean, that's basically to help you design. I mean, you have mm-hmm. this. I'm going to call it, you know, your legacy unit test that, you know, talks about how, how the system works. That's helping you figure out how to design this new piece of functionality. Cause when you're, when you're using unit tests, a lot of people just think of just the TDD cycle where you're writing a unit test on foo widget and you're writing the code for foo widget. And so you're basically, you're iterating your design back and forth between the two. Well, foo widget integrates with bar widget and baz widget. And if you have unit tests for that, those unit tests should also help drive the design of foo widget. And so it's it's a cycle. And I, I think I'm not saying you don't want to throw away your unit tests or that you know you shouldn't do them as a developer. I'm saying the value for that doesn't really trickle up to the client directly and it's very indirect. I mean you're talking about the value of the software design. Mm-hmm. And another thing is uh I want to mention this because I, I Rails, I'm not gonna say Rails get this wrong, but I it's very hard to get it right. Your acceptance tests aren't basically like always I'm in this UI and I'm doing something or, you know, full stack, high level stuff. Sometimes the business rules and business logic are a a user has to provide a password with digits and characters and a special character. That's a business rule. You might write that in a unit test, but to me, I actually consider that an acceptance test. Now, the problem with the way most uh, Ruby testing frameworks and stuff is that that acceptance test is usually clumped alongside unit tests. And so it's very hard to differentiate the two. But I consider that acceptance test because it comes from the business side. It actually dictates how the system has to work. And if you break that, it basically breaks the business requirement versus regular unit tests are kind of the more internal, like how stuff is working. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Most of my, uh, I, I try as much as I can to make my unit tests more black box and less, uh, white box. So I'm not, I'm usually not uh, stubbing things out or saying, you know, I'm, I'm calling these different things. All I'm really saying is um, when I put this value in, I get these, you know, I get these values back and I get whatever side effects I expect. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of the same thing. It's just validating basically what you said, validating a business rule that I've received from the client. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't usually see a lot of value with, you know, testing um, further up than the models. Um, unless I'm doing re- something really complicated or different from the way I usually approach things. And even then, I'll usually extract that out into its own class that's not a canonical model. In other words, it doesn't inherit from the, the Rails libraries that provide models, and I'll, it'll still encapsulate logic, and I can still test it. 
And so I, I can kind of see that we're sort of talking about the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I want to make the distinction clear between the value to the business and value to the developer, like mm -hmm. especially because I've done um, a lot of recent work on kind of like API stuff. Like there's a JavaScript side of the app and then there's the rail side of the app. And so on the rail side, we kind of have a, an API that we're saying, we're going to agree to, you know, respond in certain ways to different inputs. So the JavaScript can be developed at the same time. And in that case, there's a lot of value in testing the API. So we actually have a, not a lot, but we have a pretty significant amount of unit tests for our controllers because the controller is what's interacting with that. And it's not actually like model behavior. And so it's not, like you said, you can't extract it out to a, another uh, service object or some other class that's not a model. But even in that case, like those are still unit tests. And the only thing the business is getting out of this is, you know, an API that behaves nicely, which is good. It's a good thing and it's a good thing to have. But we have to have an acceptance test to kind of take to the client to say, here's here's what the API can do. Here's the capabilities of it. And that's that's a higher level test that we have. So one, one thing that I want to talk about really quickly, because you keep bringing up the difference between uh, the business value and the value to the developer. And to some degree, I think the two overlap. Um, oh, yeah. So, you know, having those unit tests that do benefit me in a lot of cases mean that I can just blaze ahead and and know that I'm going to get feedback if I break some. And so it, it can wind up saving them some, some time and money, um, some of my time, some of their money, if I'm billing hourly, uh, things like that. Or if another developer comes in and there's a functional test suite on there, then they can come in, they can run all the tests, and then they can they can just plow ahead. And so I think there really is some value there um, beyond just giving feed you know feedback and proving that the business or that the application works the way the business dictated that it should. Yeah, and there is, and what I tell my clients because I mean the whole topic of this is how do you convince a client of the value, and in this case of tests, I, I don't. I say, look, I'm gonna have your basically your business requirements coded into some kind of acceptance test or acceptance tests, you know, some suite or something that you can run to prove that the software works end to end the way you want it to work. Um, and I say as part of the way I develop, I have to write unit tests for my code. Um, and I tell them my experience, I've done it without writing tests before. I've been on projects where the tests are poor or they're not that good. And every time the project gets derailed because, you know, you're going to have regressions or the design's not as good as it could be, or they bring in new developers and it takes three weeks for them to get up to speed or, you know, various other reasons that I've had in my experience. And so I tell them, I'm like, look, I'm going to write these unit tests, but these aren't a deliverable. These aren't something I'm just going to give to you. You can, you know, you can be confident that they're going to happen concurrently with the actual software, but this isn't like something I put in the contract as, you know, deliverable five unit tests. Mm -hmm. And so, and I tell them like, that's not, that's not up for negotiation. Um, I've had a client that said like, well, you don't need to write tests. It's going to be simple. And I say, then I will not do this project with you because that's how I develop. And eventually like we, we talked through it and figured it out that they were more concerned about me wasting time on it. And then, so I actually educated them of, look, I can write it without tests and it'll take me five hours. I can write it with tests and it'll take me two hours and it'll be better. And once they understood that the way my development goes and the way how I write tests as part of it, they were like, okay, that's a better, that's a better deal for us. But it still wasn't an actual deliverable. It was kind of just a, almost a byproduct of how I work. 
Yeah, that's that's more or less where I'm at. I, I don't know if you you weren't explicit about whether or not you do test first, um, but uh, I, I do, and it's it's the same thing. It's just look, um, if if I write the test first, then you you get two things out of it, and one is is that um, you know I'm I'm working in a process that I'm used to. Um, it won't take any longer than me writing it normally. The code will come out better, and you know all of the benefits that you outlined. And then the other benefit is, is that as I move ahead, I know that everything works because the tests continue to pass and I don't have to worry about the complexities of whether or not I'm breaking things as I move ahead. And so the maintainability works out better for you. And then down the road, if somebody else has to pick this code up because I get hit by a bus or what have you, you know, then, then they can just do that. They can just come in, they can pick up where I left off. All they have to do is run the test, make sure everything still passes. They know that my code does what it says it does and they can move ahead. And, and that's usually it. But yeah, the concern is over the time, almost always. I don't want you wasting time writing tests. And yeah, I just have to explain to them, look, that's the way I work. And these are the benefits I think you're going to get from it. But, you know, ultimately, um, it's going to take me twice as long to figure out how to do it if I'm not using the test as a mechanism for doing the design and verifying my code. Yeah, and I've found as I've gotten more experience, I mean, I've been doing TDD or, you know, testing, of you know, maybe after on some projects. I've been doing that, oh God, I don't know how many years. I mean, as long as I've been doing Ruby. And every time I don't write tests, it always hurts. Like it's it's either hurt and painful while I'm doing it or when I come back to it and I look at the design and like, why did I make these design decisions? But I found it hurts way more if you don't have kind of the high level acceptance stuff. I've had some where I, I don't know why, I got really heavy into mocking, mocked everything up, had a bunch of um, unit tests, but I never wrote high level tests. And so when I came back to the project six months later, it was a mess. And thankfully, it was my own internal project. And so it was my own mess to clean up. It wasn't my client's mess, but... That after that, I basically sat down, rethought how I do testing, why I do testing. And that's when I kind of came to this, you know, the high level acceptance test for the client. And then you got your lower level, which are just kind of your internal work stuff. Yeah. So what about refactoring? How, you know, how, how do you convince the client that refactoring is worth them paying you to do? It's kind of the same thing. Like I, I look at those hand in hand. I mean, refactoring is you're basically cleaning up a bit of code either before you work on it or right after you worked on it. And that's just part of how I work. I mean, it's not a tax, but it's kind of, you know, like basically another step in the development process. And I'm actually talking about the real term of refactoring, not basically what some people call refactoring, which is actually rewriting and throwing out and starting from scratch, but actually, you know, little things here and there, not changing the way something behaves externally, but changing its internals. And that it's just, I just kind of, whenever I give estimates, I always group in time for refactoring, time to do any acceptance test, time to do unit tests. And then um, like we talked about on other shows, you know, my best guess plus padding and whatnot. And so refactoring is just, you know, it's just, you know, whatever step five of my process. And so I always have some in there. Sometimes I I can do a little more. Sometimes I can do a little less, but uh, nice thing about refactoring is if if you can't do it all at once, you can always come back later and work on it when you're in the same area. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's gonna just tell my client like that's how I work. It's not really an optional component that we can just take away and make the time estimate shorter. It it has to get done. 
Yeah, one one thing that I tend to do is uh, most of the refactoring I don't even tell the client about, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, it's usually something small. I'm in there working on that code anyway. Um, I rearrange it so that it, you know, works better for me in, in the current context. You know, e- even if I'm taking five or ten minutes to, you know, extract a class or extract a method or, you know, just, just make it so that it's generally more readable or more workable one way or the other, um, you know, and, and getting some characterization tests around it in some cases. You know, I, I usually don't spend more than 10 or 15 minutes at a time doing any any given refactoring, and it's usually just enough to to make the code reasonable to work with. And uh, then if there is some kind of major refactoring where I'm looking at them and going, look, um, there are some serious structural concerns here. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen a few projects where I, I went to them and said, we're not going to change the way things work from the external side, but if we make these changes, just spend two or three hours making these changes, we'll make it up in a couple of weeks. And, and explaining to them how when you're working on code that's reasonable, that's clean, that, um, you know, is elegant in that way and uh, really just, you know, makes sense when you look at it, working on that code is, is much more pleasant, but it's also much more efficient. Um, all you really have to do is explain to them where it's going to save them money down the line. And most of the time, uh, the clients are reasonable about that. Some of them don't always understand it, though. They're basically saying, "What? so you want to basically take some working code and rewrite it or rearrange it? And, and they, they just don't understand the concept there. But, uh, you know, in, in the long run, if you can convince them of the value there and help them understand how it'll save them money down the road, most of them will just take your word for it and go for it. Yeah, and that's I have the same experience, but that's to me that is not refactoring. That's changing things, or you know, changing shit is actually the technical term, and it's good. <laughs> Some almost every project can take that, and that's usually because there's been bad decisions or maybe an incorrect decision that was made in the past that caused some kind of trickle through the system and caused stuff to accumulate. And I don't consider that refactoring. I say like, look, we, we need to change this because the design we have is suboptimal for what we want to do. And I kick it up to them as like, this is, you know, if you use agile or whatever, this is a story or this is a new feature or some tasks. And I, I give, I leave it up to them. Like, look, you can make this change. It'll take, you know, four hours, but it's going to save us two hours on this other thing I have to do next week for sure. And it will probably save us more time throughout the next few months. And. I don't call it refactoring because whenever I see that called refactoring, um, even if I, I think it's considered different, the client starts to equate that big, you know, changing everything to refactoring. And then they think like the little two or three minute, like extract method type thing, refactoring are in the same idea. And they're not, they're, they're two different concepts. And so that's how they kind of get that knee jerk reaction to, Oh, I don't want you to refactor anything. Just, just write it right the first time. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, refactoring and then maybe restructuring or something. I don't know. What yeah, I think restructuring is the, the PC way of saying it. But yeah, I like changing shit. It, it kind of gets that good emotional <laughs> response in there. Yeah, I, I many of my clients have been professional enough to where I, I don't know if I would use that term. But it's it's definitely interesting. And um, one one thing that I, I do want to ask you about, because I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, looking at at this kind of situation a little bit, and I'm not 100% sure how I want to handle it, and so I'm going to ask you what you think, and then I'll kind of go off of what I'm thinking that I'm going to do. 
let's say you have a project where um, you can see that there are some some pretty major structural things that you you don't think are a great idea. So, you know, for example, maybe you have a, a really, really large core file that contains most of the classes and things that you're dealing with. And um, it, it's just not well-factored object-oriented code. You know, I mean, I if it were just me, I would just go to the client and say, hey, client, um, he, I don't think this, the way that this is structured is, is a great idea, and here's why. But let's say that there's another developer on the project who wrote most of that code. So how do you how do you approach that and approach maybe some egos and 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 things that that may or may not be there? And I'm not really sure if this is the situation on the on the project that I'm talking about. But you know, how do you do that in such a way to where it's not a personal thing for the other developers that have been working on this? Um, that's really hard uh, because you're you have at least in your opinion, you have some kind of technical problem. Um, you know, this object that has a whole bunch of stuff on it, it's not very object-oriented, whatever. That's a technical problem. And you're bringing into the fact that if there's egos, other developers, then you now have kind of the interpersonal politics. And if you're trying to go to the client, then depending on how the development team's set up, you might have the problem of going over someone's head. And so it's, you know, it depends on your situation and each project's different, yada, yada, yada. Let's see. Typically, if I, if I start a project, I try to be very passive. I don't try to push for things like that. I'll notice them and I'll write them down in like a file for the project that's, you know, it's a private file. It says like, okay, you know, what is this on the 15th or whatever? I notice, you know, this class is way too big and all that stuff. What I'll try to do is I'll try to avoid proposing like a big rewrite of it. And I'll just, whenever I have to work in the class, I'll do the Boy Scout rule of, you know, leave it better than you found it. And so if I have to work in a method, I'll leave the method better. And over time, I'll start to like make kind of helper classes or helper things and start to extract stuff out to there. And so you get kind of some of the the bad code out of that one into another one. And then, you know, hopefully like... And this is where I basically say I'm very passive. I try to make it so that I'm doing it in such a way that the other developers can see it and can say, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe we should do that and try to let someone else kind of come up with the idea who's been on the project for a while to do the refactoring. Because okay. um, I found a lot of times, sometimes the developer just doesn't know better. You know, they, they might have yeah. just like the classic example, they might have put everything in the user class just because the user is the core part of the system. The user does everything might make sense. And you know, give it a couple of months and that user class is 5,000 lines of code. They might not understand that, you know, you can take stuff out, put it into service objects, put it into new classes. And I, I've met some developers that didn't know that you can have a class in app models that is not an active record class. It, you know, it, and part of you doing this stuff passively on the side will kind of show them like, look, you can do these things. And it's like education by example. And eventually, like, sometimes the developers will see it and they'll, you know, they'll start to kind of like start doing it on their own and you don't have to even bring it up to the client. It keeps it kind of developer centric. But sometimes, and this happens if you are more on the consultant's level, you can go to the, the, uh, the business owner and say like, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to clean up some of this stuff here and there's a lot of old decisions in this code. For example, this, you know, this user class and it's actually causing a lot of pain. And then, 
you know, if you have metrics to back it up saying like every, every of every change, 75% of them have to edit this file, which means that we've had six merge conflicts, which cause 18 bugs in production, you know, come, come at the business owner with how it's actually hurting the business. Mm-hmm. That can actually get you a bit of weight to kind of throw and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to redo this. Problem is, is if you're jumping around people's heads and you have the business owner then dictate to the developers how to develop, you get a lot of the political kickback. So it's, that's why I, I start passively. And then if it doesn't seem like the developers are getting a clue, I might go up a little bit and say like, business owner, we need to move faster on this. It's just not working. Yeah. The, the only real concern. So I was thinking that I would probably, cause it seems like the, the, the person that I'm working with on this project, I haven't talked to the other developer yet. But uh, the person that I am dealing with on this project, he seems pretty reasonable, pretty open to my opinion. But like I said, I mean, I, I really want to be able to work with the other developer developers on the project. And so I've, I've considered actually doing what you, what you suggested and just, you know, we're, we're working on completely different parts of the code. And so, um, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of chance that you know, he's going to come into my code and say, why'd you do it that way? But at the same time, I don't really want to create like two different approaches to solving the same. Like siloing it. Yeah. And so, you know, well, all the, all the code that Chuck wrote does works, you know, this way and is organized this way. And all the code that whoever, you know, Joe developer over here wrote works in a different way. And so anyone coming in to maintain the project now has to understand both paradigms, even though they both work and more or less do the same thing they've been arranged in a different way. And to be honest, the code is actually really good. You know, it makes sense the way that it flows, but the organization just, it's very procedural and and it doesn't uh, split up the responsibilities well so that you can actually really understand, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's what, you know, here's where all this logic is encapsulated. And uh, here, here are some of the expectations. Well, if that's the case, you might want to actually just take a little bit and think about it. Is it actually a problem that you have your own tastes and this code is not the same taste as yours? You know, it might be perfectly good code. It might be procedural, but you might have a, a stronger um, object oriented taste. And, you know, it's a, it's the standard, uh, virus, virus versus Emacs, tab versus spaces type idea. Like, could you leave the code alone and would it be functional? Could you work in it? Cause that might be, it might just be on you on a person. Yeah. I thought about that too. Yeah. And one thing that I, I don't remember who I got this advice from, but, um, it's similar to the Boy Scout rule, but whenever you make a contribution to open source code, and especially if it's like your first one or your second one for a project, a third party should be able to read the code that was there, your code, and they should not be able to distinguish that two people wrote it. Um, and that's kind of the idea. Like if you have your own style of writing Ruby, you don't want to push that onto the open source project. You want to match their style as much as possible so that whoever's working on the project has the consistent style. And myself, I've adopted that as I gone through, you know, different code bases. Like some people, like I like to put my assessors on one line each because I know that's going to show up way better and get inversion control. But on one of my projects, I've seen some where you know, they have adder assessor and then they list 50 of them and it's, you know, a 200 line long line. Personally, I think that's disgusting, but that's how the project did it. And for me to change it, it was such a, uh, not a culture shock, but it was enough of a, a taste change that they wouldn't have liked it. So I adapted my own style to be how they were. And I just moved on. It wasn't a battle we're fighting. 
And so that's something you have to think about too, especially if it's a a team that's gelled or a team that's been going for a while. Uh, it could be that they've talked about this stuff and that's the the style that they like the most and that works the best for them. And so coming in to try to change it might not be the best thing for the project. Yeah, I told um, I told the project manager, um, I'm not really sure what his role is, but he's kind of acting as the project manager anyway. I, I basically told him that I wanted to work in the code as it was for a week, so I'm going to follow the patterns that they are using for, for a week or so just so that I really understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And hopefully that'll also give me an opportunity to work with their uh, developer or developers a little bit. And uh, from there, then I can actually start making these calls. But I brought it up because it was on topic for our, our discussion here, and I thought that it would be interesting to go into. And so it, it, it should be interesting to see how it all turns out. But uh, yeah, that, and I am trying to figure out how much of it is, well, if I had written this, I would have written it completely differently versus, um, you know, whether or not it will actually improve the code, both for readability and functionality. So. Yeah, and I mean that's that kind of goes back to the the standard programmer thing of like if you look at anyone's code, you immediately hate it and it's disgusting, and then you realize it was your code from a year ago. And you know, some of it, I've I've looked at a bunch of um, a bunch of Ruby code from you know popular people and found that some people have a certain style, and that style is so dramatic that you can. I, I was for a while there, I was able to look at any code and I could say like, you know, of the six developers that I was looking at, I could tell you which one it was just based on like, this guy has a very Unixy type background. This guy's very object oriented and this guy's very much like writing scripts, just bang it out, get it working. And all of them are great developers. All of them produced really great functional software. And that's kind of, if you kind of take it back to the business, like that's the end result is, is the software functional? Does it do its job? Part of your thing is to make sure that it can keep functioning and keep doing its job over time, which is the maintainability. And that's where some style things could actually make it better. But depending on who's working on it, it might make it worse. So like in your project, if you want to make it your style and say, say it, it appears to be better, it could be that when you're done with the project, the people who are left can't maintain your style and it might actually decay and become worse too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is always possible. And it's interesting that this is all coming right back around to what value you're giving to your customer. I'm I'm of the idea like software is there to provide value. It's not there to be elegant or pretty or to sit on a pedestal. It's there to do something for someone. And it, at the same time, it still can be elegant and pretty, but that is a byproduct of doing something. You know, you don't design software, at least as a freelancer for a client, you don't design software to actually... Oh, look, look how elegant this class is because a class is worthless if it's not in something that does something. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. It's, it's kind of funny that, uh, that you brought up that, you know, whenever you look at somebody else's code, it's like, oh, this is crap. In fact, um, a friend of mine and I, uh, several years ago, we, we kind of had this idea where we were going to put up a code analysis tool. And so basically it would, say you can submit any code from any language and uh, willing to analyze it for you and you would put the code in and you would hit the button and it would immediately return with this code is crap and no right. matter what it was it would just come back this code is crap and yeah and i mean that's the thing like code it's written by humans and humans are all well, except for me humans are not perfect and so <laughs> you're gonna get something that's not perfect and that's 
there's nothing wrong with that. And the fact that we're not perfect means that you're going to have, you could have two things of code that are completely different, but they do the same thing. And so you don't, it's all, it's completely subjective. I mean, there's nothing about it. The only objective part of it is, does the code run and do what it's supposed to do? And even that could be subjective based on who you're talking to. Yep, it's it's a very interesting conversation. Are there any other things that uh, clients tend to have some problem with accepting the value that you're giving them with, you know, similar to tests or refactoring? Um, I had a little bit of pushback a couple times on documentation, and I'm not talking about like, you know, the specs and requirements of the system, but more along the lines of like a couple pages in the readme file or going back through after you've done, you know, some heavy changes and actually like adding R doc comments or stuff to kind of help people understand decisions made. I've had a couple of clients that say like, oh, it's not worth the time. You know, we need to plow ahead. We have all this stuff to do. And I think a lot of that just stems from they, they've never had to go into a legacy code base and try to understand something and haven't seen that, you know, you could stare at a method in a class for hours and still not get how it works. Yeah, that makes some sense. And, and documentation is another one of those fuzzy areas to be sure. I mean, some clients, they really care about, you know, maintainability and visibility. And so they like seeing documentation and then others, not so much. Yeah. And luckily with Ruby, you don't have to do a lot. I mean, a readme of like getting started in the project and then the high level concepts. And then um, I like to have kind of like an index of like, hey, are you messing with, you know, authentication? Look in this class. Or are you messing with, you know, how uh, I'm trying to think of ideas that are, NDA okay but you know basically like the high level like if you're looking for this type of stuff these are your your parts of the code base you want to go look in instead of having to dig through it all I found that plus like really deep algorithm stuff of like you know why you're using inject versus each here that can get you probably 90% of the way towards documentation and a lot of that I actually write as I'm coding like a couple times on the higher stuff I'll actually write the documentation of what the next this next line is for before I actually write and start iterating on the next line. And if I'm lucky, by the time I finish iterating on it, I just extract that to a method that actually defines, like the method's the same as the documentation I wrote, and so I can even get rid of the documentation. But it's, I mean, you're not writing very much in Ruby. It's very, very, I don't know, self-describing, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Yeah, I, I've picked up several projects that actually include a fair bit of JavaScript as well. And a, a lot of this applies there, too. It's, it's rather interesting. I, I need to do better about testing my JavaScript, to be perfectly honest. But, uh, you know, when you pick up a project that doesn't have tests, you know, you, you tend to get a little bit more pushback because, again, they're, they're not really uh, keen on you writing tests because they, you know, they haven't valued it in the past. Is, is there a way that you approach that? Because for me, it, it really tends to be kind of a hard thing to do and, you know, I, I give them a lot of the same reasons and uh, most of the time, you know, they'll they'll agree grudgingly just because it's, well, if that's your workflow, then fine. But if, if they don't have tests, if they haven't really valued that, they don't really see it and it's already existing code. I mean, do you approach that any differently? So you're talking about uh, existing code that you know, mostly functions and going back and writing tests for it? Or are you talking about yeah. writing tests for new code? Both, but in the sense of, on an existing project with this existing code that has no tests. 
it, okay, so the easier case is like new features and stuff. And for that case, I, I mean, it come back to my previous statement is I cannot work on this without writing tests. If you want, I can write the tests as I do my development my normal way and then throw the tests away. And so no one else will get the benefit of those tests. I can do that. I think that's a bad decision on your part as, uh, you know, on the project. But that, that's just how I work. If I don't write tests, I'm going to basically be ad hoc testing, going in with a debugger, puts lines, all that stuff anyways. I might as well have a well-structured test written for this new feature. And that's kind of, that leads into the existing code. If I'm, if there's existing code, there's not a ton of value to go back and add tests for it unless there's problems with that code or you're going into that code as it is. If there's no problems with that code, I mean, you can kind of quarantine it and isolate it and hope something doesn't break. And to be honest, 99% of the time, something in that will probably break and leak out. And when that happens, or when you have to go and modify the old code, I'll usually come in with a debugger on one pass and just kind of poke at things. And then on the second pass, I'll actually go like, this is like one TDD cycle or whatever. So I'll, you know, do a debugger, see what some of the inputs are and see how stuff is kind of flowing. And then I'll write a test around it. And I'll, it's probably the hardest test you can write is when you're going into new or existing code with new tests. But I use it as kind of an understanding. I, I don't know how much, but I probably throw away a quarter, maybe even half of those tests because I came in with certain assumptions that as I started testing it and running the code kind of more in isolated and controlled conditions, I found that a lot of those assumptions were false and they could have been false because Maybe I misread the code. Maybe the code, like, you know, a method name is called add, but it's actually subtracting, which I have seen. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, but the thing is, is the, that's what I meant about, you know, when you're doing unit tests, they help the developer because they're helping your understanding, helping you get a grasp of how the stuff works. Once you have that grasp, you can kind of put that into unit tests. And so that's going to kind of put a little bit of value into the project. But you need to come in with the high level acceptance test to actually say like, okay, we have an acceptance test of given this big ball of code with this one input, we get this output. And that might be, you know, one of a hundred different inputs it can take, but now the business has a value documenting and showing that with that one input, it works the way it should. And so I don't remember the term for it, but you kind of go, you know, you want to try to poke at that thing, get, get some tests here and there, here and there as you're working in it. And then, the ideal case over time, you're going to have, you know, half of that thing covered and you can either get rid of it um, and replace it with something that's fully tested. You can um, just not use the other half or you could just kind of let it go. And over time, you know, the coverage and the testing of that will go be- go up and go better. Yeah, that's that's generally my experience, too. I, I call them characterization tests. I don't know what the technical term is. They're a unit test that, you know, you're basically just asserting that it behaves in a certain way based on your observations and so you've characterized the code but you haven't actually tested it to verify that it does what it's supposed to do you're just saying you know i can count on this doing this with this input and oh yeah i i call it i don't i don't have a name for it but i call it like you know like on my git command i say you know wrote wrote test to uh conform to the existing implementation of x mm-hmm yeah, I don't change the code. So even if it's a method called add and it actually subtracts, I don't change it. I don't. I don't refactor it um, unless it it's a it's being a problem for me. But uh, you know, just to get just to get something around it that says um, you know you can latch onto this and know that it's proven to at least do this much. 
Yeah. And, and then from there, then I can, you know, put assertions around anything that I add. Yeah. And that's the same thing I do. I won't change the code. I've actually written a spec that kind of like that, what I talked about, the spec says when you call the add method, stuff is subtracted. And in the spec, I say to do, this is a bug in the implementation. And I guess the only change I make to the code side is I might throw a comment in there with a to do saying, this is a bug or you cannot reach this line. I mean, it's saying, you know, if false, like you, you're never going to get into this branch. And so it's kind of a, especially in Rails, because you have the, what is it, Rails notes, rig task or whatever, you know, it will flag all those things. And because most of my projects are in Jenkins and stuff, you know, you can see the graph go skyrocketing when I start exploring new code of all the to-dos and all the the potential problem areas that I flag like that, but it doesn't actually change how the code evaluates. And so it's really safe to do, but it kind of shows and documents the understanding that I have. Yep. Makes sense. Are, are there any other things? Uh, I know I asked this before. Are there any other things around tests or factorings that you have people push back on? Uh, we talked about documentation. Um, deployment stuff. I tend to get a little bit of kickback because um, I, I want to deploy as soon as I can. If I can deploy on the first day, I'm happy. And that's because I've done system administration for about as long as I've written code and I know all the moving parts and cogs can break. And so I want to be able to get it so deployment smooth. So at, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning when there's a critical thing, you don't have to worry about, Oh, I need to copy this file, zip it up, send it to this server, SSHN, extract it. You know, I, I want the deployment to be, you know, either cap or push to Heroku or whatever. And so I kind of, I try to make the clients understand that there's business value in putting time up front to getting the servers and deployment stuff ready. Um, even if it's not to the production side, if it's to kind of uh, a staging site or a meter of production, just so that, you know, it's like, okay, I know as a developer, I can get a hot fix into production quickly. And that's I, I the biggest case I say is like, look, if there's a security vulnerability that comes out this morning, we need to have that fix on the servers by noon. Like it, it can't even, that that's almost too late for a lot of the vulnerabilities that can come out. And you know, if uh, if you kind of describe some of them to them, like, you know, would you want all of your customers' uh, credit card details exposed? Would you want their social security numbers exposed? All that stuff. It, you can kind of prove the business case without really getting in too much depth with it. And so I, on the project, I try to make sure deployment is very, very automated. And with my own stuff, I use Puppet for a lot of things. So it's like, you know, everything is written down. Everything has code that can be run by anyone in the organization that, you know, is semi de- semi DevOps or developer minded. Yep. Well, what about you? Is there other things you have to convince your clients about pro- like technical wise? So the only ones that I ever get pushed back as far as technology or technical stuff is a lot of times uh, they have it in their head that they want to use a specific library or tool or database or whatever. And they really haven't talked to anybody who has any clue or, expertise in how that all works and so um you know I so, use, like a buzzword factor yes exactly so so they come in and they say they want no sequel and you know they don't really understand what the trade-offs are between no sequel and you know something like postgresql or even sqlite um you know depending on what they need and and what the expectations are so you know they want no sequel or they've They've heard about Ember.js and they want something like a simple to-do app. And it's like, well, Ember.js is sort of overkill for that. And if we went with the, a simpler framework that just gave us the bare bones, 
we could do it in half the time and, you know, things like that. And so usually talking through that kind of thing with the client and just explaining what the trade-offs are, once it becomes apparent that you really do know what you're talking about, um, most of the time they'll, uh, they'll capitulate. They'll just say, okay, well, obviously you're the expert. That's why I'm hiring you. And then they'll go with it. And sometimes they don't. And uh, when they don't, then depending on how obnoxious it is, you know, um, if I think I'm going to have be fighting them over and over and over again, not on that particular topic, because, um, you know, one, once I agree to do whatever it is, uh, you know, I'm not going to fight them on it. Um, I will try and help them make the best decision for them. But uh, anyway, if it looks like something that's going to come up over and over and over again. So, well, first we were fighting about the JavaScript front end. Now we're fighting about you know, Rails versus Sinatra. Now we're arguing over the database. Now we're arguing over this and that. You know, eventually I'll just be like, you know what, I I really don't think this is going to work because um, we're getting to the point where you're going to start telling me how the code has to be written. And it, there's, it's just, it's not worth it. But, but a lot of folks, you know, you start talking to them and they'll figure out pretty fast, okay, he knows what he's talking about. Um, he's trying to make the right call for me. I trust him. And then it just works out. Yeah, and that's the big thing. It's the trust factor. Uh, you know, if the clients, if they're wanting specific technology just because they've heard about it, then a lot of times, like I can, you know, sit down and educate them and show them, like, okay, if you're going with Ember JS, here's here's the advantages, and that's what you're looking at. That's what you know. That's probably why you're bringing it up. But here's the disadvantages, mm-hmm. and you know, why why do you want this? Like, if you want to put Ember.js onto an app that connects to a COBOL database, okay, that probably is not going to be a good idea. You know, maybe maybe PHP might be better to connect to the COBOL database. I don't know. And I can, it depends, like, on how, how they react to it. If it's like they want to have an actual discussion and, you know, go through it, and at the end of it, like you said, if they still, like, I want Ember.js, then, yeah, I mean, probably move on and, you know, do the project with that. But if it's, if you can get the feeling like, okay, this week it's Ember.js, next week it's going to be NoSQL, the week after that, I mean, what's it going to be like, you know, are they, they're basically trying to micromanage and try to run the technical side of the project without having the knowledge of running it. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, I mean, what it really comes down to is it comes down to, Hey, look, I mean, obviously you don't trust me to make these decisions. Or, you know, you don't trust me to give you all the information to make these decisions. And so this isn't going to work out, and it really has nothing to do with how annoyed I'm going to be the sixth time that we discuss a technology decision and you overrule me. What it really comes down, and, and that's obnoxious. Don't get me wrong. It, it, it drives me crazy. Yeah. But, uh, you know, ultimately it's, look, you know, you need somebody who can come in here and agree with you on all this stuff and just do it and you know, that, that you can, that you feel like you can trust their opinion. Cause obviously you don't trust mine. Yeah. And I mean, I, the clients I work with, I don't work with them because, you know, they're like the best people in the world and all that. I work with them because I feel I have skills that I can use for them to give them an advantage in their business and that they can give an advantage to my business, whether it's, you know, first part, you know, I can get money from them. So it's revenue for my business, but also, I can learn, I can see, there's a whole bunch of other things I can do. And if it's going to come down the pike where they're using me just as someone who can type on the keyboard and fix syntax errors, it's not a good fit. It's, I'm not, the only benefit I'm getting is money. And 
you have to pay a lot in order to kind of get over all the other factors that I get from a client. And so, you know, if they're going to be, I've, I've fired a client that was like that where they were almost dictating like, okay, you need to go like there's the screen shares and like, okay, you need to go on this line and put in this JavaScript code. And I'm like, really, you're going to tell me what code I need to write now. Yeah. And, and ultimately then I'm not providing you any value because you can open up a text editor, you can go in and you can stick it in. I mean, you know, Git isn't that hard. Um, all of this stuff. I mean, really, if if I'm not going to provide you the value that I feel like I can offer, then then I don't want to work with you. And and really, it comes down to that's my thing. I want everybody to come away feeling like they got way more value from me than I charged them. So, yeah, and I mean, like that comes back to a previous show where we talked about. I think it's like the red flags of clients. Like mm-hmm. one of my because I had it reversed. Like the good things is. I come to a project where I have a lot of the technical experience and I can help them on the technical matters. They come to the project with the specific knowledge of their business and how their business works. And only by combining the two can the project be, you know, the whole quote synergy, the better than both of our knowledges. If they're going to come with the business and tell me how to do the technical, they're not able to take advantage of what I can give them. And so it's going to be a worse project, going to be a worse result, and it's not going to make me happy. Yep. Yeah, I don't want my name on it if that's the way it is. And and I don't want them coming away saying it didn't work out because he didn't do his job, where in reality it was just that things didn't mesh quite the way that they needed to in order to make it a success. Yeah, and uh, this is like a real quick tangent. I found a couple times when the client is really draconian with their technology stack, you might want to talk to them and kind of dig into the, you know, sit down on the couch and tell me about your, your past stuff. Because I found a lot of times that the client might have just been burned by a freelancer that they gave, you know, use whatever stack you want. And that freelancer ran off and did the most shiny new thing that they wanted to learn, which actually did, couldn't solve the problem for the business. And so, you know, basically the business side saw, I gave them all this rain, this guy ran off. I got rid of that guy. This next guy, I'm going to really hold onto the reins tight and not let him do anything and basically, you know, dictate from above what happens. So if you can actually talk to the client, figure that out, you might be able to realize that's the pain they have. And then just by the way you will communicate with them, you might be able to say like, look, I mean, I can understand you need something a lot more stable than, you know, the new hotness. So let's, let's use some of this older technology. It might not be as fast and efficient, but it's going to get you what you need and going to be stable. And so that's something to think about too, is like every client has a past history. And if they had a past history of being burned by new tech, that could be influencing how they act now. Yeah. And the other thing is, is uh, I found with some of my clients, they actually were getting advice from somebody else who had various levels of expertise in different things. The nephew, right? Or the brother-in-law. And, uh, you know, guy's been in the industry for 30 years but may not be completely up on what's going on with these different technologies so he's telling him to do uh some things and then I'm telling him to do some things and uh you know the the decisions aren't being um made in a way that really do help the the client so well, and they're probably going to go with the person who told them that they have the most trust in. And, you know, especially if it's family, it's going to, well, it's most not, families. It's not me. Yeah. Yeah. It's most of the time it's going to be, you know, their brother-in-law's friend or whatever. And 
the brother-in-law friend might not know anything. They might know a lot, but they might not know enough of the business to do it. Like it could have just been a, a five minute conversation over coffee. Yeah. And in, in the situation that I'm specifically thinking of, the brother-in-law actually worked for a large company that had a very popular desktop app and we were, we were discussing web apps. And so, you know, he was really going off of hearsay and, you know, most of the time he was talking to enough of the right people to get stuff right. But every once in a while, he, he was talking about things that he really didn't understand. Yeah. I mean, that's basically you're getting advice of how to fix your car from a rocket scientist. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it, it combusts fuel, but <laughs> there's, there's parts that are the same, yeah. but they're not the same. They don't work the same in both systems and you're going to get odd results. Yep. Unless you have a rocket car. Yep. Anyway. All right. Well, let's get into the picks. Uh, Eric, what are your picks? My first pick is a article called Software Engineers Spend Lots of Time Not Building Software. You can agree or disagree with the actual data because it's, I think, the only, yeah, they only surveyed 443 engineers. So it's a very small sample size, but they surveyed a couple engineers or 443 engineers, um, found out how much time they spent on different activities. And it's, it's interesting just to see the breakdowns. Um, myself, I know I have a different breakdown, but I can see like, yeah, like three and a half hours waiting for a build to complete, 3.7 hours waiting for tests to complete. Like some of those actually are pretty realistic. Um, but it's just interesting because it's a fairly recent data. And I, I gave this to one of my project managers and he laughed. It's like, yeah, that's exactly why I've, uh, pad the numbers that you guys give us so much when I report to upper management. So it was, it's just interesting. The second pick, um, bit of quick history. I've spent, I don't know how many dozens, maybe a hundred hours uh, building like an internal company dashboard. Part of it is just because, you know, that's where I can experiment with new technology and play with stuff, but actually deliver results to my business. And it's gone, I've gone back and forth on it, wasted time, um, scrapped code, all that stuff. And I don't know, I this week, maybe last week, um, Panic, the software company came out with an iOS app for the iPad called status board which is basically an app you get and you have a dashboard on your ipad and there's a couple widgets you can drag on like twitter feeds they can connect to email do graphs do charts all that stuff so i got it i've been playing with it and it's pretty amazing like i have it on right now and it's actually going to an external monitor and i spent an hour yesterday and basically wrote two custom widgets for myself one to track my revenue and then the other to track my uh, newsletter it's it's nice. It's obviously not open source, but they have a pretty simple API that you just you know write either CSV, JSON, or um, just HTML files to actually add a new widget on. So it's really neat if you have um, you know if you have an iPad and you work at home. I found the iPads a really great size for having kind of a you know the information radiator on your desktop. So I'll have the link in the show notes. You can check it out. It's I think it's like ten bucks right now, and then if you want the external support, it's ten bucks. But you know, 20 bucks compared to the dozens of hours I spent building this myself, it's totally worth it. Sounds terrific. All right. So, uh, I've got a couple of picks. My first pick is Backbone JS. Um, I've been able to get back into Backbone and, oh man, it is so nice for just getting your, um, your jQuery soup in line. Um, it just, I, I can't say enough good things about it. It's, it's a model view controller arrangement for your code and I just, I love it. I can't, I can't say enough good things about it. The other pick that I have is uh, a game that I have on my iPhone 
it's a Disney game, and it's uh, the Buzz Lightyear game. I'm trying to remember what it's called. Smash it. And uh, it's kind of like Angry Birds, except it's uh, Toy Story. You have Buzz Lightyear, and he throws different types of uh, balls and things uh, to knock down the towers and, and, you know, chase away the aliens. And it was pretty fun. So I, I initially got it for my kids, but they weren't super interested in it, and then I kind of got hooked on it. So I'll put links to those in the show notes, and uh, we'll, I guess we'll wrap up the show, and uh, we'll catch you all next week. Take care.